Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to have an open-ended conversation with my friend Lori Lambert-Williams. Lori has been teaching remote viewing for many years. She is the author of Boundless, a practical guide for remote viewers, as well as a book on monitoring the remote viewing situation, which is useful for remote viewers and also for intuitive practice in general. Lori lives in Mountain Air, New Mexico, but she's here with me in Albuquerque today. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much, Jeff. I always love coming and talking with you. It is a great pleasure for me, and I hope we have many more conversations. This is an open-ended conversation, but we're going to start out with a topic that you've suggested, fear. And uh, it's a good topic because we live in an era in which more and more people seem to be fearful. And a good example of that is the spread of conspiracy theories. Yes, it is very much. And one of the reasons that it came to me to talk about this today is because I received um, a letter this morning from a woman who said, things are getting so scary, I just want to hide. And it, it just really touched my heart when she said that because... I get a lot of letters from people who are frightened. They're frightened by the news, you know, all the things, climate change and the conspiracy theories and the weather around the world is, is frightening, just all the different things that are happening and violence and crime and politics and all these things that we face on a daily basis. Um, and so in my teaching of CRV, controlled remote viewing and associative remote viewing and extended remote viewing, one of the things I like to do is, is uplift the students and empower them to help uplift others. Now, they say if, if you can reach 1% of the population, you can have, you can reach critical mass, right? And we can raise consciousness for the whole planet. And so that's my vision is, is to help people. I mean, we may be little cogs in a massive, in a massive universe, uh, that's really a kind of unimportant in this, in the bigger scheme of things. And maybe what we're experiencing right now is just part of the evolution of the universe itself. And we well, don't have to get too scared. I happen to, to know that the statistics bear you out. Anxiety is high. Suicides are high. Depression is high. Uh, obviously, mass shootings now mm -hmm. uh, have, have reached proportions that we've never heard of before. Uh, Fortunately, we're not in a world war. I mean, yeah. things could be worse. We're, we're, we're not experiencing the, the kinds of things that happened in the last century. Mass uh, starvation, uh, revolutions uh, shaking the world. But uh, in spite of that, people it's affecting people's health. It really is. And we're seeing the rise in things like autism and children. Um, and higher, uh, higher incidences of children reaching puberty much younger. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, odd things in our evolution. And so people want to know, you know, 
what can we do? Or what should our attitude be? Or should I be afraid of this? Or should I be afraid of that? And so I just like to help people step back for a moment, take a breath, and think about this very second that we're sitting in right now, this moment. In this moment, we're in your beautiful home, (laughs) and we're comfortable even though it's very hot outside. Uh, We have enough to eat. We're safe. There's so many things to be grateful for in this moment. But so often, we cause ourselves extra suffering because we're spending our mind time either in the future, fear of the future, or in the past and regret or remorse over the past, instead of just staying right here. And I find that there's so many parallels between the idea of trying to deal with constant uncertainty and controlled remote viewing. How is that? Because if you, when you start a remote viewing session, it's as if you are suddenly waking up in a pitch dark room And, you know, we get a lot of our security from knowing where the floor is, where the walls are in relation to us, right? Mm -hmm. Where we sit in time and space. But when you're doing a remote viewing session, the first thing you find is you are appearing somewhere that you have no idea where you are. And even though we don't, I don't mean to indicate that we're leaving our bodies or anything, but even mentally, CRV causes you to face your deepest insecurities, We were all raised by parents who wanted us to be perfect and, you know, expected the highest marks. And we were raised with ideas of of success and failure, um, correct versus incorrect and all those things. So we are hard on ourselves now. Many of us no longer have our parents to criticize us. They've passed on. And yet that little voice in our heads is always like, you better get it right. And so I found that with my students and with myself when I was first learning to remove you, You have to face this deep insecurity. I'm showing up. I have no idea what this is. I might get it right. I might get it wrong. I'm in the the pitch dark. I don't know where I am or what's going to happen. If I write anything down, it might be wrong. What do I do? So one of the first things I like to teach my students is something that it took me years to find out. But once I did, it was so freeing. And not only was it freeing as a remote viewer and helped my remote viewing, but it was very freeing in life. And that is to give yourself permission to make a mistake and to make it more about the journey than about the outcome. You know, like, is it so important that I get all this right? Is it really that important that we get it all right in life? Because we're not going to get it all right. You know, we're never going to get it all right. We're never going to be perfect. And that need to feel like we've got to be perfect causes such suffering in so many of us. I, I can understand that being uh, a person who was something of a high achiever uh, in school. I always, you know, strove to get good grades and I didn't. If I didn't get good grades, I feel bad about myself. That's right. We all do. We all have that that inner person or inner voice that's like, you better get it right. You better not make a mistake. Once I was teaching... Um, a basic class. And this student that had never taken from me before was a self-made man. Mm-hmm. He, he kind of was a George Clooney type guy. You know, like he seemed, he looked a lot like George Clooney and he kind of had that assurance. And mm-hmm. we were teaching in his big mansion. And I, you know, was teaching for a little while. And then it was time for the students to, to do a little exercise. And I looked up at him and I saw that he was just frozen with terror, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and he, everybody was writing and he wasn't. He was just kind of, 
And here's this guy who had faced who knows how many different challenges in life. And yet here I could tell he was just afraid of making a mistake. So I walked over to him and I whispered very quietly in his ear, give yourself permission to make a mistake. And he took a deep breath and then he started writing. Mm -hmm. And it felt so much better. And later he said, that helped me so much, you know, just to kind of relax and realize, you know, it's not, nobody's life is at stake. (laughs) You know, we can, we can go ahead and just enjoy this experience and see what it teaches us about ourselves. You know, a lot of students who want to learn to become psychic or want to access their psychic ability, they think it's all about guessing what the target is or naming it. Whereas in CRV, it's all about describing it. But I really like to have my students, especially in the beginning, focusing on the journey, Mm -hmm. the experience, and what are they learning about themselves as they do it. Sure. For a beginning student, that makes perfect sense. But what about for professional remote viewers who are being paid, who have clients, who are expecting a certain level of performance? Well, that's the thing. I'll I'll tell you a quick story. When I was in sixth grade, I took a typing class. Mm Mm-hmm. And I thought the goal was to type fast because my, I had a sister who could type 100 words a minute. Whoa. You know, so I was like, oh, this is the goal. Type fast. Yeah. So I was really trying to type fast. <laughs> and so um, the first grade came around and the typing teacher was going to give me a D. Mm-hmm. And I was horrified because that was going to kick me off the honor roll, right? Mm. So I was like, why are you giving me a D? I'm really fast. She said, you're fast, but you're extremely inaccurate. <laughs> She's like, you're, you're extremely inaccurate. And, you, and I said, but how do I, how do I get accurate? And she said, you start out slow. Don't worry about speed. Just go slowly and the speed will come. And I had never thought of that. You know, so I was like, oh, okay. So then I started typing slowly and eventually I became a very fast and very accurate typist. Well, it's the same thing with remote viewers. Slow and steady wins the race. If you go into it and you can let go of the anxiety of, I've got to get right, I've got to get it right, I've got to get it right, and you just enjoy the process, the accuracy comes naturally. It's not something you can get by really trying to get it right. Because our conscious mind is the egoic part of ourselves, right? And the ego wants to be right so badly. It has to be right. But it's the non-psychic part of ourselves. So when we really just yield to that egoic part of ourselves, the conscious mind that is trying to take control of the whole session and constantly saying, I already know what the target is. I'll tell you what the target is. You know, then you frequently find that, oops, nope, that wasn't right. Because that part of ourselves, that conscious part of ourselves that is above the lemon, You know how they say subliminal and superliminal? Well, we have this invisible membrane we call the lemon. Everything above it is awareness, conscious, superliminal. Everything below it, we're not aware of, and that's the subliminal, the subconscious part of ourselves. The only way to get around that lemon is to go through the body. And so when we go through the body, we let the body be the connection, and we allow that true psychic part of ourselves that's below the limit to have a voice. And that's the whole idea of controlled remote viewing. Well, we started out talking about fear. And I wonder if this lesson uh, from controlled remote viewing applies to fear in general. I think it really does because you face your fears right away. Once I was, I got a phone call from Lynn Buchanan's wife, Linda. Mm -hmm. 
who has is no longer with us, yes. but she's with us in spirit, and we miss her tremendously. But she called me, and she said, Lori, Lynn's out of town, and one of his students is calling, and he's panicking. Could you talk to him? And I said, sure. So I talked to this guy, and he said, well, here's what happened. I asked a friend of mine if he would choose a target for me, and so he gave me this target. I don't know what it is. And now I'm getting really worried. Like, what if it's like a murder? What if it's some horrible thing, you know? And, and I said, okay, well, the solution is let's just look at the target. You know, let's take a look at the target. And the target was this beautiful photograph of, of a lake, you know, a very placid lake with forest. And, and, uh, and there was nothing scary at all in it. It was a gorgeous photo. And it was he, instead of remote viewing the target, he was actually remote viewing his fear. You see, yeah. so he was looking at his fear. And what I find is that a lot of viewers who are, are carrying fear, generally, mm-hmm. will bring that into a session. Like, what if it's going to be this? What if it's that? And also, remote viewing, CRV, will bring out your fears that you didn't even know you had. You'll suddenly discover fears that have been laying dormant. Yeah. I had a, a funny situation happen not too long ago. I received a call from a student who said, oh, I think that I'm just a terrible remote viewer. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. I really, I just, I suck at it. (laughs) And I said, well, what happened? Tell me what happened. She said, well, I was viewing one of the practice targets, and I missed it totally. I just missed it. And uh, and I can't remember some of the descriptors she told me she got, but when, when I said, well, what was the picture of? She said it was that target where there's a young man kneeling, and he's proposing to his girlfriend. He has a little ring in his hand, and Mm -hmm. he's on one knee. It's a very sweet photograph. And she said, I can't understand how I missed it. She got all these very negative perceptions about it. Mm -hmm. And she said, I just totally missed it. I think maybe I'm not good at this. And I said, well, is there anything about a man proposing to his girlfriend that you would have a reason to reject or not feel good about? And she said, oh, I've had three failed engagements. That's pretty serious. <laughs> she said, I've had three yeah. failed engagements. So subconsciously, she reacted poorly mm-hmm. to that target, even though to anyone else, that's, oh, what a sweet target. That yeah. would be a great target yeah. for remote viewing. For her, it wasn't because it brought up these issues with failed engagements. And so it's really fascinating to me how the subconscious mind is so tapped in and how we can get to know ourselves in a much deeper way through our reactions to a target. Mm-hmm. I once had a surgeon in a class, um, and she was from Russia. And you know that a surgeon has had people die on, a, on the operating table and has had to deal with death. So she's in a basic class, and she begins crying. And uh, so I go up to see why she's crying. And she said, oh, no, no, please, don't, don't worry about me. I always cry when I do psychic work. And I said, why? Why do you cry when you do psychic work? She said, because I cry for all the little dead babies. So <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> um, now, let's take a look at your target. I don't see any dead babies in your target. So I said, so why are you crying about dead babies? And she was like, well, it's just something I do with every, every time I do this kind of work. And I said, well, you don't need to do that anymore. Just stop doing that. She went, oh. Okay. And then she never did it again. (laughs) She just, you know, it's just like all this emotionality. Now, I think in some cases we have people who 
are rather drama queen-like, maybe just need to have that drama. In other cases, maybe it's just latent fears that have been buried so deeply. Um, And I think you and I have discussed before how I had this latent phobia of heights that I didn't even know I had until Lynn began giving me height targets. Mm. Lynn Buchanan, my mentor, you know, he would, he started giving me height targets and he realized I was afraid of heights. Mm -hmm. And then when he asked me, are you afraid of heights? All these memories came rushing in of times when I had just been paralyzed with fear because I was high up. So I became desensitized to heights through the remote viewing process. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, wow, this could help a lot of people get over fears and phobias. Fears of spiders, fears of snakes, fears of water. I have a lot of students who have a fear of water that they didn't really think about until they had water targets, you know, that they started having a problem with. Well, it's an interesting thing that you said to uh, the woman who was, if I remember uh, which one it was, the, uh, I think the engagements or uh, one of the others, you said, get off of it. Yeah, just <laughs> knock it off. Yeah. <laughs> it was the surgeon who was crying every time she did it. Oh, right, right. The crier. <laughs> the crier yes. over the, the dead babies. The, the, dead imagine, babies. the imaginary dead babies. Two things. I think it's very interesting that uh, people can, they can let go. It's, it's not necessarily a hard thing to do. If you make up your mind, I'm going to let go of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just let go. <laughs> kind of like that scene in that movie with Cher where she slaps the guy and says, snap out of it. <laughs> and he tells her he loves her. She's like, snap out of it. <laughs> that always cracked me up. But I, I tend to actually be a very gentle, compassionate teacher. But at the same time, I like to be very direct and straightforward with the students. And, uh, you know, and just, I remember, I, I have, we have a lot of mantras in CRV. And the common mantras are things like describe, don't identify, Mm -hmm. always move down the page. We have these certain things we say repeatedly. Uh, But I came up with a few Lori mantras, some of which I probably can't say on your show. (laughs) No, you can. I can. I can say anything. You can. You can say anything at all. Well, one of the freeing things that happened to me, I was so uptight about making mistakes and so afraid. And it was holding me back in my progress as a remote viewer. And one day I had a paid project and you were asking about, what about professional viewers? Who are ex- yeah. So I had a pay, it was like, I was in the early days and I was one of my first paid projects or one of the early ones. And I was very nervous. Like, what if I blow it? Someone's paying me. They trust me. They expect me to be good. What if I blow it? And then I had the thought, just make shit up <laughs> and just trust your subconscious that it will prov- yeah. it will be giving you the right information. Mm-hmm. Stop doubting yourself and start trusting yourself and just give yourself permission to make shit up. Mm-hmm. And so I just started doing that. And that's become like among my students, like a Lori mantra, make, sh- make shit up, just make shit up. And the thing about it is it sounds heretical in the idea of having accurate remote viewing. But that's the thing is it's, it's, it's controversial, but it actually leads to accuracy. It's a good way to get past being, feeling stuck. Exactly. Mm-hmm. When we get, in fact, I've done, I do this, this little thing, a short little video every week for my, for my students. It's called your PRV moment. And I've recently started putting them on YouTube. So they're free for anybody who wants to see them. But we call it your PRV moment because now we're calling it practical remote viewing for, for certain people. The video versions of my classes we call practical remote viewing, but it's the same thing. It's controlled remote viewing. Mm-hmm. But the, I just do these little short five-minute videos or eight-minute videos with tips. And one of them is called, what do you do when you're stuck? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do when you come to this point and you're like, nothing's coming. 
I can't, you know, I just, nothing, I just don't know what to write down. I, I like to joke that, you know, many of us say, oh, I can't meditate because my brain is so active and it's bouncing off the walls. And then you go to do a remote viewing session. It's like total silence <laughs> in your brain. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I do, I give a lot of tips for how to get unstuck in a remote viewing session. And I, as I'm getting older, I guess I'm getting more philosophical, but I'm really thinking about how there is such a parallel in life to controlled remote viewing and everything we learn there versus life itself and what we're learning. And yesterday I, I held a one hour little mini class about what do you do when you're in a remote viewing slump? Like how do you get motivated? How do you stay motivated mm. when you fall into a slump? And a slump is where you're doing great, you're going along, and then suddenly it's like you fall off the cliff and, excuse me, and you can't remote view to save the life. You just can't remote your view your way out of a paper bag, so to speak. You have one bad miss, it can kind of uh, affect your whole attitude. That's true. One bad miss. And then if you have three or four in a row, yeah. then you think, oh my gosh, what happened? I used to be good at this. Suddenly I'm not good at it. Suddenly I suck at this. What's the problem? And what... And so in talking about this with the students, and you wouldn't believe how many students signed up for this, mm -hmm. a lot of students, um, and they were saying, you know, yeah, we get, in, we get in the slump and we're discouraged and you just sometimes you feel like I can't even pick up my pen. Mm -hmm. I'm just stuck. Yeah. Well, I believe in, uh, that under the lemon, underneath our level of awareness, there's a battle going on in a way, maybe between conscious and subconscious mind. Maybe the conscious mind feels a little insecure that the subconscious is suddenly having more of a voice. And so it's like this insecurity is there and, oh no, what do I do? Um, and so I started talking about how, look at the slumps we have in life. Mm -hmm. We hit slumps. We have cycles in life. You have cycles where you're super energetic and cycles where you just have no energy to do anything times when you're ultra creative and you're making this and you're going to produce that and times where you just feel like, oh, I don't even want to get out of bed. Right. And I think that's normal. And when you think about life in general, there's divorce, there's loss of many kinds, there's change of jobs, change of careers, moving to another place or a new house, so many changes in life. And when I worked with refugees who had been tortured or who had had you know, horrific things, lost their homes, had everything ripped out away from them. They would come into the country and often would have what we called the honeymoon period where they were euphoric because I'm safe all of a sudden. I'm safe and I'm, I've got food in the refrigerator and I'm, I've got a safe house and I'm, I'm okay. And then they would go into a huge depression mm -hmm. because it would hit them everything they'd lost. Mm -hmm. So this depression would be so deep and so painful. And then they would come and they would say, I'm, I, they would say, Mrs. Lordy, I am, I am having nightmares. I cannot sleep. And I would say, well, that's normal. You are a normal person having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation that occurred to you. Mm -hmm. Trauma now, we're discovering how much trauma plays a role in our lives. And often it can be trauma that happened when you were a small child. And it doesn't start manifesting in your life until you're older. Yeah. And then we think suddenly it's like, what's wrong with me? What happened? You know, <laughs> you know, it's suddenly like, oh no. And we think it's so odd because we have this high standard of behavior when in reality it's normal. We're normal people having normal reactions to abnormal things or big, big changes in our lives. And so if we have those kinds of slumps in our day to day lives, it stands to reason that golfers have slumps. 
pianists have slumps. People who do day trading for a living have slumps, right? I mean, everybody experiences slumps. It's a recorded phenomena. Um, and in fact, there's the first timer's effect that's also a recorded phenomena. When uh, the first time you're taught to play poker, for example, and then you win, you win the game and everybody's like, how could you win? You, we just taught you how to play it today. And you, you beat everybody. You take all the, you take all the coins. And people say, wow, how did that happen? It's, it's a proven phenomena called the first timer's effect. But that very person who won in that day could then have a series of misses and, and fail to win. And that is, again, another proven phenomena. So I'm finding that personal development has become a big part of my CRV classes. I think uh, it's especially true in remote viewing, the, the first time effect. Uh, and it's usually the second time when people begin to think, what have I just done? Where, <laughs> where fear comes up, like uh, all kinds of fear. What are people going to think of me if I keep doing this? And Or am I going crazy? Or are people going to think I'm going crazy? How am I going to explain this? It's really true. I have a number of students who are scientists, mm -hmm. and my husband is a scientist. Yeah. Um, but it's really interesting. I had, a, I had a, a student in my class, renowned psychiatrist, and on the second day of class, he really nailed his target. Mm -hmm. It was a train traveling through a mountain pass. Mm -hmm. And so he said, there's, there's like organic and land like this, mm -hmm. and then there's this man-made, and it's kind of going like this. And you could see he was just viscerally into the target, you know, experiencing it. And then later he said to me, I'm going to have to work really hard to prove to myself this didn't just happen uh -huh. because it's busting my paradigms yeah. apart, and I don't know if I can live with that. Mm -hmm. uh, in another case, another scientist, this was a female scientist, her target was a bunch of guys in those orange rescue jackets kind of digging a car out of the snow. And she described the snow. She described the men. She described the car. She described the shovel. She described the orange jackets. And then when she pulled out the picture and saw it, she freaked out and went, oh, my gosh. She was like, I can't believe I just did this. And she said, I don't think I can do it anymore because it's scary to me that I just did that. You know, so when you have a very narrow paradigm and suddenly you experience something that just blows that out of the water, that can create fear. Because again, we feel safe when we know where the floor is and where the walls are, where the ceiling is, where we are in space and time. And that can shake our reality. Well, and I'm under the impression that the whole point of CRV is to get people to move beyond that that fear to be able to do things on a regular basis that they could easily do the first time. Exactly. And to make it a part of your daily life. Mm -hmm. um, I love teaching quick ways that people can use their psychic ability during the day, yeah. you know, just fast little things they can grab. One of my favorites is how to pick gifts. Um, I have a hilarious gift story. <laughs> where my The first time Jim ever bought me a gift, it was it was cow underwear. Jeffrey, it was cow underwear. <laughs> okay, you mean like, like for the kitchen, a colander? No. It was ladies' panties that were made of cotton, high-top briefs. They were white with black spots on them, uh -huh. and we called it cow underwear. Oh, cow underwear. Cow underwear. Uh -huh. So 
so he, you know, we were just starting to date, and it was my birthday, and he said, I got you a little gift, and I opened it, and it was cow and I looked at him, and he looked like aghast. He said, he realized, uh-oh, I think this might have been a faux pas, and I, I said, um, let me help you out here. I said, first of all, never buy a woman underwear. That you, especially in women you don't know really well. And secondly, make sure that if you ever get anything from me, it sparkles. It doesn't have to be expensive. It could be a card that's sparkly with glitter on it. I love anything that sparkles, so you can't go wrong if you get something that sparkles. And he was like, okay. And we always laugh about the cow underwear. He's like, it's a miracle <laughs> that you married me after the cow underwear debacle. But <laughs> but um, he's just the greatest guy ever. I just adore him. But it's so funny because then we... I, I del- how can I say this? Then I ended up learning this technique where when there's you have a gift to pick out. So, for example, this necklace that I'm wearing, mm-hmm. um, I bought this for my mother. And we were in this jewelry store, and this designer named Eric Andrews designed this, and he had all these beautiful necklaces. And they weren't that expensive. They're Farsky crystals. They're not diamonds or anything. Mm-hmm. So I laid out all the ones I thought she might like, and I had them in a row. And then I said, okay the one of these that mom will like the best will feel warmer than the others. Mm -hmm. So again, this is using the body to allow the subconscious mind to communicate. And so then you just do it super fast. You don't second guess. You just go like that, that fast. That's how long it takes. And I chose this one and she adored it. She absolutely loved it. So when she died, I got it back. Uh But I did the same thing when my son after much work and after going through a divorce, a remarriage, new babies, all kinds of things, he, while working full time, got his nurse practitioner's license. And so to reward him, to, to show him how much, how proud we were of him, we wanted to buy him a very nice watch. So we go to this jewelry store, we explain the qualifications of the watch, and this woman said, oh, we have several of those. And she laid them out on this velvet cloth. And they were all gorgeous. Every one of them was gorgeous. And the one I liked the best was copper, was mm-hmm. a copper color. But I thought, what if he doesn't like, you know, not everybody has my taste. What would he like? So I quickly took a photo and sent it to his wife and said, which one of these do you think he would like the best? Um, she had left her room, her phone in another room, so she didn't answer me immediately. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, whichever one he would like the best is going to feel warmer than the others. And I passed my hand over and picked one. And then Jim walked up and said, I'm going to say whichever one of these he would like the best will feel warmer. And he chose the same one. Mm -hmm. Then this text came through from his wife saying he would like the second one from the right, which was the one we had both felt was warmer. Meanwhile, the woman waiting on us in Amarillo, Texas, was about to make the sign of the cross and run out of the building because she thought we were witches of some kind. I tried to explain to her that it's actually based in brain science, this Mm -hmm. technique. She wasn't buying it, but <laughs> but well, it's a technique I imagine that you learned from your days practicing hypnosis. No, actually, this was something that I learned in studying associative remote viewing with Lynn Buchanan. Okay, and uh, it but the hypnosis I started studying much later after I had become an advanced remote viewer. Um, a professional. I, that's what actually got me interested in in teaching. I mean, in learning hypnosis and practicing mm-hmm. hypnosis because the mind is so suggestible. Mm-hmm. But um, the funny thing was, then my son. We need you need feedback. You need to create a time loop when you're doing this sort of thing. So the feedback of you know when my son actually said looked at the photos and said this is the one I like the best. This was you know, definitely I liked it much better than the other ones. That's your feedback, right? That says mm-hmm. okay, I made the right choice. 
But the interesting thing is when we teach retrocausality. So retrocausality. Retrocausality or causality. <laughs> causality. causality. I always say causality. All right. Anyway, the way the way this works though is you can have something here in the future that is actually creating the moment in the past. So when I'm passing my hand over it and I say this is the one he would like best, is that because he actually said, oh my gosh, this is the one I like best. And I was really excited by the fact that he liked it the best. And we had this moment of temporal attraction where we're like, yes, that's so exciting. And that actually feeds back through the past and causes me to choose that one. We did an earlier interview on time travel and re <laughs> remote viewing. So this, this is something along those lines. It is. Well, I find time is really, really exciting. And it was so funny because I just just before coming here we mm -hmm. were at Cottonwood Mall the the we while our car was getting the oil changed they took us to Cottonwood Mall mm -hmm. and i walked into the store and i saw this necklace and it was made of these concentric rings and they were movable mm -hmm. there were three movable rings and in the center is a tiny little um uh, what do you call that the hourglass a tiny little hourglass in the center with sand in it mm -hmm. and so i picked it up and i said oh this is really interesting because the three rings represent yaw, pitch, and roll. You know how airplanes and aeronautics, mm -hmm. we have yaw, pitch, and roll, and that's yaw, pitch, and roll in space, yeah. right? But the three rings with the hourglass in the center represent yaw, pitch, and roll in time because time is holographic and it's all around us. And so this little necklace represented that. So I bought the necklace because I thought, oh, this is just too cool. It wasn't expensive. But the funny thing is the woman who was selling the necklace, who owned the store, she was totally flabbergasted by my explanation of the meaning of the necklace. She was like, oh my gosh, I have two master's degrees and I would have never thought of... Well, how do you translate your pitch and roll in space to uh, a time reference? Well, because many people think of time as being consecutive. Right? Yes. That we're, this linear. minute, the next, it's linear, right? Yeah. It's linear and consecutive. When in reality, time is happening all around us mm -hmm. in every direction. Yep. And it's happening simultaneously. Now, years and years ago, when I first discovered that time wasn't what I thought it was, um, you know, I asked Lynn, explain time to me. <laughs> and he would start explaining it. And then I would just be confused. And I would say, wait a minute, uh, explain it again. <laughs> mm -hmm. But then, you know, he, and he always said, it's something you almost have to experience to really understand it. Mm -hmm. And I have found that to be true. And that's why I love CRV because you have experiences while deep in a session, especially when once you've reached that really advanced level, yeah. you end up having experiences that belie your belief systems, like the belief that time is linear mm -hmm. um, or that the future can create the past, um, things like that. So reality then becomes malleable. We, we discover more and more that reality is malleable. And that's another thing. When you get back to fear, when we're talking about fear and remote viewing, um, I had a, a man write me and he said, please, I'll pay you whatever you want. Tell me where my sanctuary will be. He said, because I heard on a radio show that a remote viewer who shall remain unnamed has said that, you know, the whole wor world is going to blow up you know, any day now. Actually, this, this particular remote viewer said it was going to happen in February of 2011, I believe. Okay. What of this terrible disaster. Yeah. But th so this man was saying, please, please, where is my sanctuary? Where will I be safe mm -hmm. from this coming disaster? Yeah. 
And he was actually living in Ecuador, mm -hmm. this man. And I said, actually, I think you're doing great in Ecuador. <laughs> Stay in Ecuador. But, um, but the thing was is that it was fear. And I get letters from people all the time who are really afraid. They're afraid of what's coming. Where will they be safe? I've written a number of blogs about how to choose the perfect location, how to choose careers, you know, ways that you can do remote viewing things for yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of people want that. They want to be able to do it for themselves and not be dependent on having to hire someone to do it for them. So when it comes to people being afraid and not knowing what direction to turn or where to go, I like to explain that reality is malleable. And rather than focusing on your fears and looking at your fears and what if this happens and what if that happens, instead, take a moment to imagine the world the way you would love it to be. And then focus on that. And see if you can manifest in your life the reality that you would like to be having. You know, that you would like to be happening. That would be the key, is to really focus on what do you want. I like that word, manifest. <laughs> I think uh, that there's definitely a parapsychological aspect to it, but it has nothing to do with experiments. It has nothing to do with the, the, the scientific side of it. It has to do with your overall life. Are you living the life that... Uh, supports you. That is so true. And it, and manifestation is really not difficult mm -hmm. when you really put yourself into a place of abundance. And I think a lot of people misunderstand what abundance means. And because of that, many are living in scarcity and lack. And I don't mean just financially. I mean, I, I have been guilty of, for example, trying to cram too many things in a short space of time. Like, first I'm going to do the laundry, then I'm going to mop the floors, then I'm going to wash the dishes, then I'm going to do, do it all in an hour. Yeah, you know, there's never enough time in the day to get everything done. Exactly. And we think we have to get everything done in this specific time frame. And really, that's, uh, that's living from scarcity and lack. There's not enough time. I have to get more done. I have, oh, it's 10 p.m. I, I can't go to bed yet. I have to get this next thing done. Mm -hmm. It's all from, that's coming from scarcity and lack. Whereas when in abundance, we know we have enough time. We know that if I don't do something today, it's okay. It can happen tomorrow mm -hmm. or the next day. It doesn't have to happen immediately. And we also kind of relax into the flow of things. We don't let other people's emergencies move us because we just, you know, I mean, and I mean, I mean, pseudo emergencies. I don't mean a real emergency, but I mean like, oh my God, I need this today. Please get it for, get it to me immediately. I've, I've, I used to be really into people pleasing. And so that everyone else's emergencies became my emergencies. Mm -hmm. And it, and then it kept me in a, in a place of, of anxiety a lot of the time. So just learning to relax into the flow of things has been a wonderful joy. And I've also learned that my healing, you know, I'm a mother of nine adult children. Mm -hmm. We have 22 grandkids and a two-year-old great-grandchild. That's a big family. That's a big family. And I'm seeing how my own, focusing on my own healing, which is something I never really did before, but focusing on healing of childhood traumas and things has a ripple effect mm -hmm. that is really supernatural. I mean, it's, it's not anything that you, that you can say, Hey, hey, 
kid, I just want to show you I'm healing. No, you don't have to. It's just, it just manifests and suddenly everyone begins healing. And the cool thing is that it can ripple through time backwards and forwards where you can heal the generational trauma that has been happening maybe for generations into the past, mm-hmm. beyond World War II and World War One. My great-grandfather had, uh, no, it was my grand, was it my grandfather? It was my grandfather, my dad's dad. That's mm-hmm. my grandfather. Yeah. He had trauma from World War One, mm-hmm. terrible trauma from World War One, And that, of course, passed on to my father, which passed on to his children. So generational trauma is a real thing. And I'm learning how it's so important for it to, to say the buck stops here at some mm-hmm. point and say, let's, let's heal that and let it reverberate through the generations so that it can stop with me. It doesn't have to, my, my children don't have to have generational trauma. And hopefully we can even somehow heal past generations mm-hmm. into the past. And there's many cultures that believe that you can heal the past. You can heal past trauma, even from people who have passed on. I accept that. I'm I'm totally comfortable with the idea that time is we experience it is relative to our um, existence here, but it's not absolute. Exactly, totally. It's not, definitely not absolute, and so it's just a wonderful. It's just a wonderful thing to have to shift from fear. Imagine, I mean, I think that it's hard for people to even imagine living without anxiety that doesn't have to be controlled through drugs. I realize that there's many people who are on anti-anxiety medication and it really helps them and I'm not in any way dissing that. But I do find that it's wonderful as a as person who's experienced it to be free from fear and not have that be medication dependent. Mm-hmm but to have it be experiential where you suddenly see reality in a whole new light and realize you don't have to be afraid anymore. That there's a grand design to all of this and we're tiny cogs in this massive machinery that is, pr- that is moving just as it's supposed to move and that everything is happening just as it's supposed to play out. I, I like that idea. I, in fact, I subscribe to it. It, it seems weird. I mean, people will say, you mean you think the, that the war going on somewhere, that that's a good thing? And I would say, well, at the ego level, no, of course not. But at the level of consciousness, it's good that we have challenges. And, and we don't know whether we've all come here for a purpose. I had an experience not too long ago that radically changed. No? Recently, yeah. I had an experience where I experienced being, I experienced time happening simultaneously. And I have never been a person, even as a hypnotherapist, if you came to me and said, hey, would you do a past life regression? I would do it because you asked me to do it. But I was never one that really subscribed to it. I wasn't, I was kind of the jury's out on the whole past life thing. Mm-hmm. Not sure what I believe regarding that, etc. And I did never feel like I needed to examine past lives for any reason. But I recently had this experience uh, with the help of a therapist where I experienced numerous past lives simultaneously. And so I had all, I experienced all these past lives simultaneously, but it was like being inside of a hologram where not only did I experience them and was I experiencing them as now, they were all now, none of them was in the past, this is all happening right now, and I was this in this life and this life and this life and this life, it was all happening right now, 
And as I was experiencing these past lives, I was also seeing this current lifetime and seeing how everything was interplaying and affecting, everything was all affecting, everything was all connected. And it was extremely powerful on a very personal level. I'm not getting into all the personal aspects of it, but it really taught me a lot of things and showed me how, what many things in my life mean now and why they're occurring now. And, uh, and it just freed me immensely. I also was able to see my purpose here, which was not the purpose that I thought at all. It was very, very different from what I had thought my purpose was. And, uh, and it really, it, it helped me gain a lot of self-love and self-respect that I hadn't previously had. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So what was your previous image of your purpose? Well, of course, when I was younger, I thought my whole purpose here was to save lost souls, you know, lead them to Jesus. Then I moved from that to saving refugees. I was working for the refugee program. That was my purpose. Then I moved from that into teaching CRV. That's my purpose. To raise consciousness on the planet is my whole reason for being here. And then I had this experience, and in this experience... I saw myself kind of like a, almost like a stone wall coming up through the earth. Like, have you ever driven from Moriarty to Santa Fe or, and you see the dikes along there that they're called dikes. They're these big, massive stone walls that are natural, that are like volcanic. Oh, no, I haven't. It's, it's beautiful. If you ever are in Moriarty and you drive to Santa okay. Fe. <laughs> so, so there's, you know, there's hills, rolling hills. And then you come to this place where in the midst of the hills, it's like teeth. They look like stone teeth. And they're coming up right in the middle of the hills in a big long line up. And it's a very straight, like a wall, but it's all natural. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's volcanic. Yeah. And so suddenly I saw myself like that coming up. And it was painful coming up through the dirt. And it's difficult. And it's exhausting. You're coming up and, you know, and along this. And I realized that I was that wall. And I was stopping generational pain from going any further. Mm-hmm. So that I, and that it was, and then I saw myself coming up like a sculpture, this beautiful sculpture coming up and and kind of going into the cosmos. And I was just shown, and it it wasn't a verbal thing like you are, you know, it wasn't a verbal discussion, but I just suddenly had this deep understanding that my purpose here, true, my true purpose was to heal the generations of my family and to keep, to be able to, in my, through my own healing, help my children and my grandchildren to not have to continue this generational pain. So that was very surprising to me because I had always thought my purpose was raising consciousness, teaching CRV, which of course I love and I am very dedicated to. But I realized that, that this time right now of healing has been so amazing. I mean, the communication with my children has been just just amazing through this process that I've been experiencing. In, in other words, remote viewing for you, as important as it is, is one facet of something larger. Exactly. Exactly. And I do believe that the various forms of remote viewing that I teach, mm-hmm. ARV, CRV, and, and ERV, are tools in a toolbox, much yeah. like tarot cards, crystal balls, palm reading, psychometry, and other forms of parapsychological functioning that rely on something to bring them out. Um, and CRV is one of those things, ARV and uh, ERV. They're all, they're all tools in our toolbox mm-hmm. to help us access the subconscious mind.
And you used the word healing a, a while back, and it has occurred to me, I don't know how many remote viewers consider themselves healers, but it seems to me once you are on, I'll call it a spiritual path, mm -hmm. which I think remote viewing is akin to a spiritual path, that, that healing is a natural part of that. I think it is too. I think there's no way that you can become good at, a, at remote viewing. I mean, world-class good mm -hmm. without stepping onto a spiritual path. Melvin Riley, who was the first remote viewer, asked to be into the newly formed unit in Fort Meade. Mm -hmm. He became a dear, dear friend of mine. We were friends for many years. And one thing he said, he was the only soldier who was in for two tours. Mm -hmm. So he was in for eight years. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, I saw a lot of guys come and go in that unit. I saw a lot of people come and go. He said, I found that the only ones who really got good were the ones who really kind of took on a level of spirituality with it. Mm -hmm. He said there were some people who would come in thinking, oh, I can make money off this. Yeah. He said those people never became good at it. Mm -hmm. He said it was only the ones who really wanted to really look inward. And that's not easy, Jeff. You know, that's just not easy to look inside and have to face trauma from your past, for example. It's a tough thing to do. I'm 66, and I realize, you know, my whole life I've been on a spiritual journey, mm -hmm. but I have fought facing certain things that I felt were too hard to look at. And so this has been a painful journey, but very rewarding. Lots of work, but so rewarding when you finally let the shells fall away, the, mm -hmm. the, the lacquer around the little grain of dirt um, I heard a Zen Buddhist master recently say that he he knew he had monsters in his closet and he finally got tired of fearing the monsters in his closet and he threw open the door and embraced the monster. And that that was a, such a key to his healing. Mm -hmm. And that really stuck with me. And I thought, yeah, what are, what are the monsters in my closet that I need to embrace? And since we're talking about fear yeah. and remote viewing, I think we all have monsters in our closet, mm -hmm. things that we're afraid of, things that we don't want to look at. Yeah. And I became really adept at shoving stuff down that I didn't want to look at. You know, I'm really, really good at it um, to, you know, to where I didn't know. And when you do that, you put blinders on and you right. can't see the reality right in front of you. Talk about remote viewing a distant site that's distant from you in time and space. What about the reality that's right in front of us? How well do we see that? Well, our own mind, our own subconscious mind. Exactly. Our own subconscious mind is a doorway to who knows how many dimensions and parallel universes and that sort of thing. But I, it would make sense to me that if you're hiding something from yourself, that is potentially going to be a block to psychic functioning. Well, I don't know. I, 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 they found that people who have, who are like really traumatized often have a high degree of psychic functioning. Yes. And so, and I believe that people who've been highly traumatized are probably the most adept at hiding things from themselves. But yet they can still psychically view other things because mm -hmm. I've, I've been really, really amazingly good at remote viewing while hiding a lot of stuff from myself. And so I don't know that it's a block to psychic functioning. In fact, I think sometimes the trauma where you have to really kind of walk on eggshells because you have an alcoholic parent or, you know, a histrionic spouse or whatever. And so you kind of are like, okay, you know, what am I going to encounter when I go in the house now? 
and, and the child who's forced to be a parent or who's forced to take on a role or grow up sooner, they become very psychic yes. because it's part of their survival. I, yeah, I understand that that's true. Yeah, so I think that, and yet those people also, I mean, as we know, adult children of alcoholics become kind of detached from their emotions and they, they have, they have a, a really good skill of hiding things from themselves that they don't want to look at. And so that the psychic functioning and the hiding things doesn't necessarily combat one another. Well, maybe one way to put it is is that even a talented psychic will have blind spots. Exactly. That's true, too. That's true, too. And, of course, we know that psychic functioning is almost never 100% accurate. And so um, the key to it, I think, is that we're all, to realize that we're all on a journey of healing. So when people get very caught up, one of the things that in this recent experience that I had, one of the things that became very apparent to me is how temporary everything is. You know, they say, if you don't like what's happening, just wait a few minutes because it'll change. Yeah. And that's so true. Everything is so temporary, yet we get very caught up in the drama of the moment sometimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, when, and whereas it, I'm starting to learn how you don't have to get too excited about the drama of the moment because any moment it will change. <laughs> it's going to change very soon. I'd like to go back to the story you told earlier about the woman who uh, was crying yes. all, all the time because, if I remember rightly, the dead baby. Right, the dead babies. <laughs> and um, it made me uh, think about there is a lot of pain in the world. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I don't know which particular dead babies this lady is, is referring to. Some people, from my point of view, call what I would call a fetus, they call a baby, and maybe that's what she had in mind. But but there are other dead babies as well, mm -hmm. real dead babies. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that one of the th reasons that humans as, in general aren't more psychic overall is because there's a lot of pain in the world, and we insulate ourselves. We don't want to take in the pain of the world all the, all the yes. time. That is so, oh, that is such a beautiful thing for you to bring up. It's so true. And I do get letters from people who say, because I have this free class out, right? So people will write and they'll say, I really want to take your free class, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid because I, I feel like I'll take on too much pain from the world. And they'll say that exact thing. Mm -hmm. And so like, oh, how can we, you know, how do we buffer ourselves from the pain of the world? Um, and the the truth is, you have to develop a pretty tough skin to some degree because we have remote viewers who specialize in finding missing people. Yeah. Sometimes those missing people are children who have been murdered or yeah. dismembered or horrible things. And they have to come upon that yeah. in order to help the parents. And, and the people who just are like, no, I can't, I just can't look at that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to ever see that. Then those people can be good at other things and can right. be useful in other areas, but they can't help. Those parents find closure. They can't help the police find the, the missing child. It takes a special person to do that kind of work. I think so, too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I know people who are, who are tough that way, yeah. resilient. But yet, if you, don't, if you don't watch yourself, if you're doing, I did that kind of work for two years. Mm -hmm. And I finally had to stop because I felt like I was, it was affecting my health. Yeah. But I think you have to, at some point, you have to be very good at self-cleanup. If, mm -hmm. For a lack of a better way to put it, you know, you have if if you're doing tough work like that, 
you have to continually cleanse and detox spiritually and, and really ground yourself in your own reality and the things you love, whether that's taking a bath with scented candles or in bubbles or whether that's going for a walk in the forest and connecting to nature or whether that's doing sound baths, you know, with sound. Sound is very cleansing. The frequencies of sounds or listening to your favorite music or dancing or watching a comedy or whatever it is, getting a full body massage. There's a lot of ways to bring yourself back and to kind of cleanse from things. But once you see something, you can't unsee it. That's one of the problems. So when there is a lot of pain in the world and you happen to be an empath, one of the problems I had for many years was picking up on people's pain. And I would literally physically have a, a, a pain in my body. Mm-hmm. So I, one of the first things that happened that was really strange is I was sitting in a courtroom and I, it was the, where they picked the jury. Mm-hmm. What is that called? Jurisprudence? I can't remember the term. Yeah, there is a term for it. But anyway, so I'm sitting in the audience and they're, they're questioning various people. Yeah. And they, and, uh, there's a man, I mean, I'm, of course, I'm sitting in the back row and there's people all around me, but they asked me, okay, so you're a hypnotherapist. Do you do forensic hypnosis? And I said, no, no, I don't. And they asked, do you do this kind of hypnosis? Do you do that kind of, you know, they were asking different questions. Um, I went to lunch that when everybody broke for lunch and I collapsed in the middle of the street because I suddenly had this horrible pain that shot up the middle of my right leg. And it was really intense. I mean, and it came on so suddenly that I literally just, my legs just gave out and I collapsed in the middle of the street. Thankfully, there were no cars coming. But I was like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Like, what's wrong with my leg? And I was frightened. And I, I you know, later we had to show back up after lunch. So I'm sitting in the courtroom and I, my leg is aching and I'm thinking, what's going on? And we have a break. And the man who's been sitting in front of me all day comes up to me and says, do you do hypnosis for pain? Because I have such and such disease and it causes horrible shooting pains into my right leg. And the minute he said that, my leg stopped hurting. Then in another instance, um, I was getting ready to teach a class at home. This was back when I was teaching in our house and people would sit around my dining table while I taught them CRV. So it was, they would show up on Friday and leave on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So Friday morning before they arrived, Jim left to go to the family farm. He had work to do at the family farm in, outside of Alamogordo. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to be home alone teaching the students all weekend. And so Friday evening, I developed a pain in my right butt cheek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you so said I can see anything, anything right? <laughs> <laughs> so I had, and it, it felt, felt like, like I had a bruise the size of a dinner plate on my right butt cheek. And it hurt so bad I couldn't sit down to teach. So I had to teach standing up because I literally couldn't sit on my bottom. So the students all leave Sunday evening. Jim ba- arrives home, and the minute he walked in the door, I mooned him. I pulled down my pants and said, Jim, what's wrong with my butt? And I said, my butt hurts so much. And he said, it's not you, Lori, it's me. And he pulled down his pants, and he had a bruise the size of a dinner plate on his butt cheek, the same one that was hurting me. The minute he showed it to me, my pain was gone. And he had fallen in the dark Friday evening, right when mine started, he'd fallen in the dark and fallen on a metal box that the tip of the box, you know, he fell right on it. And oh man, and then my mom got a frozen shoulder and I woke up with a frozen shoulder. Later, she got a bladder infection. I woke up and I didn't have a bladder infection, but my bladder hurt. So I, and I'd never had a bladder infection. So I called her and I said, do you have a bladder infection? She said, yep, it's me, not you. And then instantly it was gone. So I was like, what in the, you know, what is this that's happening that to me that I'm picking up on people's pain? We were asked, Jim and I were asked to become part of this 
ghost-busting team mm-hmm. in Amarillo called the Texas Panhandle Paranormal Investigators. Oh. TPPI or something. Uh-huh. So, uh, we went to this haunted house, and they asked if I would sit in the room where all the phenomena had been occurring, yeah. and if I would do a remote viewing session mm-hmm. to kind of see what I picked up on. So I was getting all this information that was later proved to be accurate, but while I was sitting there, suddenly I started developing a headache, and the headache became overwhelming. So I got up, and I went to Jim, and I said, do you, do you have any Tylenol or aspirin with you or anything? And he said, why? And I said, I have a massive headache all of a sudden. And he said, is it yours? And I went, hmm, I don't know. So I went over and asked the owner. I said, did anyone here have something happen with their head that caused pain? He said, yep, Uncle Jack. That's the room you've been sitting in. Perfectly healthy guy. Woke up one day with a massive headache. Died two weeks later of a brain tumor. And so I was like, okay, Uncle Jack, thanks for letting me know you're here, but I don't need the headache. And instantly it was gone. So I was realizing how this phenomena was something I had never experienced before. And I didn't know if my involvement with CRV was just opening doors all over the place to where I was picking up on these things. But this ties back into what you were saying Mm -hmm. about how being psychic, are we going to just pull in the pain of the world? And I was so empathic that I was having a lot of permeability. Like I didn't have my own skin and, and everything was too permeable. So I've had to learn how to protect myself better and develop my own skin. And I do believe that the lack of having your own skin, having those boundaries established, also feeds back to childhood trauma. When we were in a situation where we had no sovereignty, we had no ability to choose for ourselves or whatever, then, yeah, you become to where you're just like a sponge Mm -hmm. and you're picking up on everyone else's things because it has always been your responsibility to fix things and keep everybody happy. And so many people I meet have been in that situation from childhood. Mm -hmm. And so that's most of the empaths I meet, that's been their situation and that's why they're so empathic. And so it takes skill to learn. You have to really learn how to protect yourself so that you're not just taking on all that pain, but you can watch it almost like when you watch a movie. When you watch a movie, you know it's a movie, and you know you're not in the movie, and you're not going to get stuck in the movie. You're just watching the movie. It's You're an observer, like, like somebody floating up around the ceiling, just kind of seeing what's happening, but you're impartial. And it sounds cruel, but you have to become impartial and objective, like a reporter reporting a war scene. So the reporters are standing there. There's bombs going off behind them. They can't freak out and start screaming. They have to just be like, you know, reporting what's happening, right? And that's how remote viewers have to become. We have to be objective observers. We have to report what's happening without becoming emotionally involved in it. And it takes, that's probably the greatest skill that a remote viewer has to develop, you know, beyond everything else, is that ability to report objectively. Well, let's talk about the pain in your butt yes. for, <laughs> as an example. Okay. Do you think it would be possible if before Jim came home and it showed you, you know, that it was his pain, could you have determined by yourself that it was not your pain? I could have. The thing about it, it that's what eventually had to happen. Mm-hmm. Initially, I couldn't differentiate. Yeah. My, you know, this sure felt real to me. Yeah. And so it was really hard to differentiate. And then a really sad thing happened. I kind of hate to to talk about it, but what kind of culminated this whole pain thing was um, I was walking across a parking lot 
at this grocery store in Amarillo, Texas. And I suddenly felt like I got hit by a car. There was no car there. It just suddenly, you know, I felt like I got hit by a car. And I was like, what was that? And then I started thinking, God, what would happen if I got hit by a car? Like, would they, you know, I started kind of going off in this train of thought. And I thought, what, this is so strange. Why am I thinking, what is going on? You know, and I just, get, get that away from me. Just stop thinking that way. Well, my dearest friend's son, 14-year-old son, had just been hit by a car. So then I was in the hospital with my friends, um, and and the news media was very involved, and I was the one, like, fending off the news media and talking to the news media and praying with them and being with the family and kind of acting as an intermediary. And And I stayed with them for seven days while he was in pediatric intensive care. But every night they would insist I go home and go to sleep. They'd say, Laura, you have to go home and sleep. So I would go home, but then the minute I would go to sleep, I was in that boy's body, and I was experiencing everything he was experiencing. And it, you know, one day it felt better, and I went back, and they said, "Oh, he's doing better." And then one night I went in the middle of the night, I woke up, and I knew that he had just passed. And it was it was torturous for me. And I got up; it was three a.m., and I was went into this our little office, and I was sobbing and crying. And Jim woke up, and I wasn't in bed, so he went to look for me. And he came in and he said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, he just died. I know he just died, but I don't know what to do. I said, should I go to the hospital right now at three in the morning? Should I, you know, what if I'm wrong and I'm just showing up at the hospital at three in the morning? You know, like, what do I do? And I was so upset. And he said, wait till five, go at five. So I said, okay. So at 5 a.m. I went and they told me he had passed at 3 a.m. And, uh, but the thing was, is I was so connected to that boy the whole time that I realized that it, emotionally speaking, it just didn't feel, it didn't feel healthy. It didn't feel like a healthy thing to do. Um, it, you know, I felt like I was able to help the parents to some degree, but at the same time, it was unnecessary, if that makes sense. Um, I was working once on a, on a plane crash. I was remote viewing this plane crash. They needed to know the, the source of the accident, like what caused the plane crash. And there was, um, if the plane, when it crashed, it, it crashed off the coast of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And there were some survivors, but they were eaten by sharks, like which is a horrible thing. Yeah. Well, this was known information, and it was not something they needed me to remote view. So I'm doing the remote viewing, and I'm suddenly on this airplane, and I'm describing everything that's going on in the plane, and I'm in the cockpit, and I'm describing all that. And then I see that the plane's tipping, and all these things are happening. And then, and then the next thing I know, I say, well, Jim, I'm, I'm having this image in my mind of people getting eaten by tigers, which is, you know, analogous, of course, to the sharks, right? Yeah. So I'm like, and I'm hearing like, I'm hearing like flesh tearing and, and I'm seeing blood. And Jim knew about the, the sharks. Mm-hmm. And he said, that is known information. Would you like to move to the man-made and describe? And he just totally moved me away from that because he was like, as monitor, he was, there's no need for her to have to be exposed to this sort sort of gore, you know? And so I think that we need to take care of our psyche. And so as as a teacher of remote viewing, I always want to make sure that my students are well cared for and that I'm not giving them traumatic targets, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And yet at the same time, as they're building their skills and they're getting better and better and heading towards that professional level, which is happening more and more, Jeff, we're seeing such a phenomenon of students who are just making it all the way through Mm -hmm. and becoming professional level. When that happens, of course, they have to get, they have to gradually build their ability 
to handle more emotional targets. So we choose targets that have some emotionality to them, but maybe no death and dying, you know, to kind of gr- gradually get them more used to to things. Like, uh, for example, the miracle landing on the Hudson. Mm. You know, that's a wonderful target. Right. Nobody died, right. but it had to be scary, yeah. you know. And at the, so that's a good target to kind of help people kind of go, okay, you know, I'm... So you're suggesting a, a balance is necessary, a, a certain degree of openness to the pain of of the world, uh, but at the same time, a, a, an ability to protect oneself nevertheless. Exactly. And to maintain objectivity mm-hmm. so that you can report clearly, you know, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of anything is, you know, that's what makes you a good journalist, right? And we all have to be journalists. Remote viewers have to be good journalists. The key, the thing about CRV that separates it from other types of psychic functioning is that it's an interview and report methodology. Mm-hmm. So essentially, a CRVer or a practical remote viewer is someone who can report objectively and actually get it down on paper and give a, a, a finished report to the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very clearly written and clearly delineates all the details without a lot of emotionality. It, it's a very particular skill. It is a very particular skill. Mm-hmm. Which is, it distinguishes it from uh, just general metaphysics or general psychic functioning. Yes. And, you know, I think the news media has changed a lot from the days of Walter Cronkite, <laughs> you know. But, um, and now maybe things are a little more emotional on the news than they used to be. But I remember in the days of Walter Cronkite, you know, there, you were supposed to just be very unemotional and just the facts, ma'am. Nothing else, <laughs> just the facts. Yeah. And so I try to teach that to my viewers that that's, you have to be the Walter Cronkite every remote viewing and not get too emotional. And I say, when you write your report, Leave yourself out of it. Don't put things like, and that really freaks me out, you know, because the customer doesn't care if it freaks you out. The customer just wants the details, you know. So, and so it's, it's just kind of an interesting thing to think about in relation to fear. We have to be able to rise above fear because if we don't have people on the planet who can rise above the fear and become objective, you mentioned conspiracy theories. Yes. For the longest time, especially during the pandemic, Oh my gosh, everybody on the planet was sending me YouTube videos to watch. And one of the things I like sharing with people is the gift of CRV, the gift of learning it. Here you go. This is this gift you can learn CRV is so that you don't have to watch YouTube videos. You don't have to watch the news media. You can get your own answers rather than having to be swayed because a lot of the people who were sending me YouTube videos were saying, well, the news media is lying to us. And then I'm like, well, how do you know the YouTube videos aren't lying to you? I mean, they're, they're, you know, anybody can lie to you. Anyone can influence you, right? We have influences constantly through billboards, through our screens, all of our devices. We're constantly being influenced. The gift of remote viewing is being able to rise above all the noise and really get a clear picture of the true reality of surrounding everything. So you can make your own choice of what to believe and what not to believe based on, tr- on a true blind target. That's the thing, though. It's got to be a blind target. If you're getting information when you have no idea what the target is, that's to be more trusted because it's not tainted and polluted mm-hmm. by anything else. By your desires and fears. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because our desires and fears definitely pollute things, yeah. you know, to a great 
deal. Well, Laurie Williams, we could keep talking for hours. <laughs> I think we already have been. <laughs> I'm sure, but this is a delight. And I like the idea of an open-ended conversation. You and Lynn Buchanan, I think, are the only people I have done this format, the open-ended conversation <laughs> with. But you're both welcome back anytime. We can do this over and over and over again. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love being here with you. Thanks for having me, Justin. It is my pleasure. Thank you. I'm delighted that you made the trip to Albuquerque. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now, many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death? 